Hey listeners, it's Amanda, and I'm here to tell you about the upcoming virtual license Scrum Master for Nonprofits course offered by Agile and Nonprofits. The course starts on September 11th. In just five mornings from the comfort of your own desk, with the support of the D.H. Leonard Consulting Team, you'll become a licensed Scrum Master. Visit their website, agileinnonprofits.com, to sign up today. Well, hello there. I am Kimberly Hayes de Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you are listening to... Season 3 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We are a dynamic duo bringing you insight and knowledge into the ever-evolving world of grants, development, and fundraising. That's right. It's also a real possibility that we'll break into song, la, la, la. talk about pie, mm-hmm. or refer to you, dear listeners, as y'all. Y'all. Maybe even all y'all. Mm. Um, we, <laughs> we hope all y'all will subscribe to the Fundraising Heyday podcast. Got that right. This podcast is brought to you by our season three sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Hey, don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, and grant mock review. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. In today's episode, we are getting some world-class advice on something near and dear to my heart, social media. I don't know about you, but I love the many different ways we can all keep in touch. It's true, Amanda. You are the master of the quirky selfie, the super schedule of the fundraising heyday Twitter account and all around empress of emojiness. And you have dragged me kicking and screaming <laughs> into expressing myself online. And you're doing so good. Yeah, I do uh, love a good emoji. Probably anytime you see those things where it's like what not to do in emails and social media, emojis are always on there. And I'm like, whatever. I love my emojis. <laughs> Just, it's me. Um, but this is part of why I'm so excited about today's guest. We are interviewing Julia Campbell. Julia has run her digital marketing consulting business for nearly a decade, focused exclusively on mission-driven organizations, which Kimberly and I love. Um, she's a mom of two and a returned Peace Corps volunteer. She is also the author of Storytelling in the Digital Age, a guide for nonprofits, and author of How to Build and Mobilize a Social Media Community for Your Nonprofit in 90 Days, based in Boston, which we've already discussed offline how us Atlanta folks probably couldn't survive a Boston winter. Um, (laughs) Julie is a global authority on digital storytelling with happy clients spanning the globe from Moscow to San Francisco. She's provided workshops and trainings to Meals on Wheels America, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, the Boys and Girls Club of America, and Facebook. She's a frequent contributor to Nonprofit Tech for Good, Social Media Today, Maximize Social Business, Evaluation Web, Network for Good, Wild Epricot, and others. Her passion is to get nonprofits of all sizes to stop spinning their wheels on social media and to start getting real results using digital tools. So before we begin, I want to go ahead and let you know that all three of us are recording this using Zencaster, and we're not in our studio because at the time of this recording, we are practicing safe social distancing. That's right. Well, welcome, Julia. Thank you. Wow. When that gets read out, it sounds... (laughs) 
sounds very impressive. impressive. You're just you're just an example of another underachiever that we have. Underachiever and not doing you know, anything. We just we just gather it makes us feel better about what we are. Who we do. <laughs> but um but I just um I'm, we're both so excited that you're able to join us today, and I know that your years of expertise uh, in marketing and in social media would just be such a, a benefit to many of our listeners who wear many, many hats mm-hmm. in their nonprofits or local government agencies. So if you're game, I would love to just jump right in with that first question. Sure. Well, also, I want to say that my background is in the many hats kind of industry. <laughs> so I've been a development director slash marketing director. Slash oh, yeah. Slash events, slash oh. duties as assigned. Oh. I've got the balloons and had them in my car and set them oh. up at events. And then oh, also, getting, oh, you know, major getting, donor at the same I'm moment. Flashbacks. Yeah. I'm getting flashbacks. <laughs> Julia, we have, we have a past oh. episode where uh, Kimberly compares fun oh. special events to um, Downton Abbey. And oh. it's funny because mostly because she hates <laughs> the special events. She's like, not hate, my forte. Hate is Brutal. a strong word. I would say it is not for me. And mm. I question the, the ROI on many events, but not all. Some are doing great and some are costing those many hat wearers a lot of um, psychic and emotional energy yes. for not payback exactly (laughs) and i remember being an event coordinator when there was Uh, no smartphones oh gps i'd have to download things from MapQuest. i oh it was horrible oh Oh my gosh kids kids you just don't know how just so kids today (laughs) oh you today get off my lawn so anyway here we are here we are so um one of the things that uh, Julia writes and talks a lot about on her many different platforms, and we'll explore those um, later, is um, storytelling. So whether you're a grant writer or you're um, one of the other multiple hat wearers that we talked about, fundraiser, executive director, all of the above, you've all heard about the importance of storytelling. But what I found is a lot of folks are kind of confused about what it is and how it pertains to their organization and getting work done. So I would like to ask you, Julia, what do you see as the biggest obstacle for most nonprofits to get proficient at storytelling? I see the biggest obstacle as nonprofits really having imposter syndrome. And it doesn't matter what cause you work for. A lot of organizations think their cause is not sexy enough. So if they don't have puppies and kittens, they lament the fact that they don't have puppies and kittens. If they do have puppies and kittens, they think, oh, we're not on the front lines. We're not healthcare workers. We're not saving kids with cancer. If they do save kids with cancer, they think, well, this is a really depressing cause. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to hear stories about it. So in my work, I just feel like this imposter syndrome around what is a quote unquote sexy or accessible mission is really destructive. And it also stops organizations from starting, like even before they get going. Mm -hmm. So what I want to say to nonprofits is that if you are passionate about what you do, if you're enthusiastic about what you do, there are stories of your impact. So even if you don't provide direct services, even if you're in academic research, even if you are a library, or even if you are 10 steps away from the actual people and the lives that you're changing, at the end of the day, the vision that you have, the problem that you're solving, that is a story. And I also think, I know you asked me for one obstacle, 
But another obstacle that I find really challenging is that organizations think that they have to have the perfect story. So they have to have the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, Mm -hmm. Star Wars, Harry Potter, epic journey, all wrapped up in a bow at the end. And it has to have valleys and peaks. And there has to be this incredible transformation that happens at the end of the story. And often stories are still being told. And people are in the middle of the story. They're in the middle of their journey. And inviting your supporters to come write the ending is is really important. So those, those are really two of the biggest obstacles that I see. I love that. Writing the ending, imposter syndrome, perfect story. These are all speaking to me in deeply personal ways as well, but mm-hmm. we do not have time for that today. But I, <laughs> well, and I didn't even think about nonprofits having imposter syndrome because I, I, I know I have it plenty of times. Like, sure. especially you can yeah, ask me on a panel and I'm like, how did I get put with this lineup? Because, yes. oh my gosh, I don't fit. Yes, but, it. Yeah, a nonprofit. I can see that. Interesting. It doesn't matter. It does not matter what mission an organization has. It could be in all missions, they think the grass is greener. They think it's easier for a different mission or it's easier for a different cause or it's easier in a different locality. But a lot of us, I mean, the greatest quote that I heard, especially throughout um, the coronavirus crisis, is that we're all in the same storm. We're not in the same boat, but we are all in the same storm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Very true. Okay. So what is the one thing that nonprofits could do better at storytelling? Because sometimes stress staffers, they need something to focus on because we're being pulled in all these different directions, right? So what's what, what can they do to be better at storytelling? Well, they could really understand what storytelling is and do a little more research on how stories are captivating and whether or not they're sharing messages when they think they're storytelling. So often I see organizations just sharing promotional messages or writing a really long, you know, post on Facebook filled with jargon, filled with terms that I don't understand. And it's not a story. It's more just a recounting of things that happened. So an example is Jane was homeless. Jane came to our shelter Jane has a job, Jane left. That's not really a story. I mean, it's more telling me what happened in what order. But a story, you know, in lights, you know, lights up my imagination. A story gets me emotionally invested. A story has stakes. You know, what are the stakes involved? And I always give the example of, I don't know if you are familiar with the Berenstein Bear books. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So I read those with my kids all the time. And the ones from the 70s and 80s always have stakes. You know, it's like sister lied or brother didn't do his homework or, you know, mama bear is getting a new job. And what does that mean? But the new ones, unfortunately, because Stan and Jan both passed away, are really just a, they went to the aquarium and had a good time. There are oh. no stakes involved. So my kids aren't as interested. And a lot can be said, a lot can be learned by Stan and Jan Berenstein for nonprofits, there has to be some kind of conflict. Um, and there has to be, there have to be stakes in order to make it a story. There also has to be a relatable character. Who is the character and who is the villain? You know, and what are they overcoming? So the one thing nonprofits could do to get better is to really evaluate their communications and the kind of storytelling they've been doing, especially if it's not getting them the results that they want, and evaluating 
is this really a story or is this simply just a message that I'm kind of putting out there? Got it. Well, and something Kimberly and I and other grant professionals often talk about is so many of us that are in the grant field, we are big time readers. Mm. And I really feel like reading makes me a better writer. And so I would think the same would be true for nonprofits. If you want to be better at storytelling, go read some good stories, even if it is the Berenstain Bears, you know, (laughs) whatever works. (laughs) And also compile examples. So with all my clients, the first thing we do is we start a Google Drive and I've been taking screenshots and saving emails and saving direct mail pieces that I've gotten and videos that really resonate with me. And I put them all in a Google Drive as really great examples of whether you're doing marketing, whether you're doing fundraising, whether you're doing advocacy, here are some examples to pull from. So as you do your work or as you are scrolling Facebook or looking at your email or even just watching the news, like listening to the news, Keep your ears perked up and your eyes perked up for those stories that really resonate with you and save them in a Google Drive that you can study later. Oh, that's a great suggestion. Oh, I feel a sidebar tangent coming on here. <laughs> um, what about for organizations that don't, I think the 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 premise of storytelling is easier, maybe intuitively for most of us, if you are, if your organization is serving people, mm-hmm. you know. Libraries serve people, whatever, or a, 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 a sentient being, let's say, like, I guess you could make that argument for dogs and cats or who, or whatever that, that, but for people who do things like, um, the environment, I'm environment yeah. to a certain extent, you know, river keepers I, and, 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 and other organizations, would you say, try to take the storytelling back to the impact that it has on people or find a different way to tell that story? What what would be your mm-hmm. advice for organizations like that? Well, the story and the missions that we're trying to accomplish always has an effect on people at the end of the day, no matter what it is. So I'm working with a land trust and actually they're struggling or they were struggling with this. And they were struggling to tell the story of the importance of preserving these certain parcels of land where I live out in Western Mass and what it means to the future of society. And they were really struggling to make it into tangible terms that people could understand. But the thing is, especially if you're fundraising, you have to make it about the incentive for the person. Like, what is the incentive for me to give you money to help preserve this land, um, to help, you know, protect this river, to help, you know, preserve these, um, the birds and the wonderful wildlife that live here. What is my incentive at the end of the day? And the story that we're telling, we're telling stories about farmers and what it means to lose their farmland. We're telling stories about um, children and families that really enjoy camping, that really enjoy, you know, going out and having a free place to go on the weekends and explore. So, I think no matter what your mission, just paint me a picture of what your vision is and then paint me a picture of what would happen if you went away, if you closed your doors tomorrow. And I know that's an unfortunate reality for a lot of organizations at this moment, but show me and tell me what would happen if you all of a sudden were not able to do your work and what would be lost. And it has to, it really does have to involve people in some way, because those are the stories that we relate to. So, I mean, animal stories are great. If you're an animal lover, tell a story about an animal. For most people, it does need to somehow relate back to 
what is the effect on actual human beings? And always a story around one person or a very small group of people, those stories tend to work the best. Nice. So keeping it person to person, I've often heard the argument on many from many different um, experts in the field about how our inclination, especially if you're writing grants, your inclination and you're being asked to stats and percentages and averages and means and all of these things. And still there were studies done in another aspect of fundraising, uh, direct mail, that showed that people really are less responsive to that. And they're more responsive to the one-on-one stories. I'm drawing a blank, but I'm pretty sure Tom Ahern was involved somehow. Oh, but, I <laughs> love Tom but, you, Jan. But the, the, it just struck me the way it's like, just tell the story of one person versus mm-hmm. this entire neighborhood or, or whatever it is you're working with. So. I mean, I think there's a place for statistics and data because yes. I've seen Penelope Burke speak and she is you know, a very famous writer, author, researcher on donor behavior. And she's very into facts and figures. And when she spoke, she said, you know, the poor Timmy story does not work for me. She calls it the poor Timmy story. Yeah, sure. She said, I really need data and facts. She said, but I don't think you can lead with data and facts. I do think you need to be showing that you're making an impact and also not only showing that you're making an impact, but demonstrating that this is a problem that needs to be solved. Because a lot of times people don't understand. I mean, I worked for a domestic violence shelter and people thought, oh, doesn't that just happen to poor women, or doesn't that just happen in certain segments of the population? Or I thought that problem was solved. I've actually had people say that to me. So demonstrating that there actually is a problem and it's urgent, it's timely, it's relevant. And then here's the story that's going to make it real for you and help your brain understand and, and help you wrap your mind around the impact that we're having. And Julia just shared how you write an effective problem statement and a grant proposal. I love it. That's right. That's right. Which will actually be another episode in season three. So your check is in the mail, Julia. Thank you. (laughs) I did grant writing for years. That's how I started my business. I was a part-time freelance grant writer. Nice. Mm So I want to. I'm. I'm so thankful you took us on that journey on that on that very very fun and interesting tangent. But I wanted to circle back to these folks who may be listening and going, "Oh, this is really great. Yeah, we get the we get the stats. We get poor Timmy isn't always going to get it for us. But what can we do? We're so strapped. Who is going to be the storyteller in our organization? So in larger organizations you know, whole entire marketing departments, large hospitals, universities, et cetera. And in small nonprofits, there may just be one or two people to do everything anyway. So maybe they just flip a coin. But in medium-sized nonprofits, what's the best position or job title in those small to medium-sized nonprofits, maybe up to a, a million in revenue from like 10,000 a year to a million in revenue? What's where would, where would that kind of leadership role in storytelling, where ideally would it reside? That's a tough question. Ideally, I think it would be the executive director. So maybe not in telling the story and actually crafting it, but leading the charge in terms of building a storytelling culture, because that's the most important thing you can do to succeed with storytelling. That is also a huge obstacle. Um, A lot of my clients come to me or my students and they say, well, this is all fantastic, but I can't get buy-in from the program officers or I can't get buy-in from the board, I can't get buy-in from my executive director. 
So having a person in a leadership role that embraces the importance of storytelling and can kind of manage it and also just make an example and tell stories at staff meetings, encourage program officers to work with the marketing and fundraising staff on getting (laughs) stories. Uh, Because I've been there. I mean, an example that I would give is when I was a development director and development slash marketing slash everything. And I worked in a domestic violence shelter and I came in and I thought, wow, I'm going to get these stories. I would send out emails and say, we need a story for the email newsletter. And of course, crickets, because I wasn't giving examples. I wasn't communicating with the program officers one-on-one. I wasn't trying to build a storytelling culture and everyone they didn't really understand what I was trying to do and they were very busy. I mean, let's be real. Everybody's super busy and, and strapped for time. And just because you need some content for social media doesn't mean that they're going to drop everything and give it to you. So I had to work with the executive director and say, look, these are some of my ideas. I would love to have your buy-in and maybe we could go together to approach the program officer, uh, the, the person in the field that's actually doing this work and talk to her about her thoughts and getting people, getting people's buy-in. It's not just ordering them around or giving them a list of tasks. It's really encouraging them to have some ownership over the process and asking them what they see. And what I've seen in a lot of organizations is that there is just such strong protection for the clients, which as there should be, um, you know, some program officers who die for their clients and they don't want them to be exploited and they want the stories to be told ethically. So in my opinion, I do think storytelling is not going to work if you don't have the buy-in and support and leadership from the person that kind of where the buck stops here. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very true. And it is a big challenge, but maybe just having those conversations is a good first step. Just starting the conversation and always having examples. And having a plan. So I learned this from my very first boss when I worked in fundraising at Boston University. If you would go to my boss and just say something like, I want to tell some stories, he would look at you like you had seven heads and he would say, how much is it going to cost? How much time is it going to take? Can you give me examples of other organizations that have done this? Uh, He would need a plan. Sure. Um, and we'd need almost like a 10.1 page plan. And then what I started to do was realize that every time I had an idea, I'd have to go to him with a plan. So a lot of people are like that. A lot of boards are like that. A lot of executive directors are like that. So having examples and having an, a really fleshed out idea of what you're trying to do, even if you're just starting the conversation saying, I would really... I really think that stories could augment our fundraising because this is what I'm seeing. These are other organizations doing it and they're doing it really well. And I think we could do something like this. And here are the five steps that we need to take in order to do something like this. So being as specific as possible Mm -hmm. works. Well, and I think it's a good point too, that you're, you know, you're, you talk about stories for your newsletter is that your newsletter, even if in there, you're not asking for money, it is still a fundraising tool to use. 100%. Because I think, I'll tell you, the the one time I've been in charge of a newsletter, most of my background working in grants is in local government, which, you know, we we don't really do fundraising. We just tax the heck out of you. (laughs) But um, we, I got, they let go of our, um, 
oh, I forget what her, public information officer. When she left, they decided not to replace her and just start divvying out her work. And so the newsletter, they were like, oh, Amanda, she writes grants. She can write. She's in charge of our newsletter. So that's how I got to start doing our city newsletter. And you're right. It was like pulling teeth. It was just once a quarter. So four times a year, it was pulling teeth to get stories from people. It was to the point where it's just like, I just wanted to slap something together and get it off my desk so I could get to my real job. Um, But that's really a bad way to look at it. So if I, if only I knew then what I know now. (laughs) I know it's tough. And people also hear the term storytelling and going back to the biggest obstacle, they think it's this epic journey that you're going to write a thousand words or there has to be a five minute video. When really right now in the age that we're living in, it could be a 30 second, it could be a 10 second Instagram story. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be this huge, gigantic, polished, produced piece of work. Not be a TikTok video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, tell a story. A lot of them. <laughs> Sorry, my daughter is obsessed with that at the moment. So I, I get to watch lots of those every day. It's exciting times. <laughs> so, well, when you talk about success stories, what's the typical shelf life for one? So is there, and it does it differ for different social media platforms? I love organizations that use a story and give updates. So Charity Water does this. I oh, and also oh, yeah. um, Amira Incorporated, A M I R A H, one of my absolute favorite organizations. I'm a monthly donor. They prevent and support. They prevent sex trafficking and they support survivors of sex trafficking in New England. And what they do is they they don't ever obviously give away details, identifying details. They never show pictures of women, um, the women and men and children that they help, but they tell a story and then they'll give you an update. So they'll say, Karen came to us and, you know, X, Y, Z. And then 30 days later, they'll say, Karen's 30 days sober. And here's what's going on with Karen. And you start to really get to know these women, even though you don't see their face, you don't know their name. You You hear their circumstances. So I think a success story tell it as long as you can. Give me updates. Help me really form a bond with this person and really understand what they're going through. It's also going to help you to explain to people the different stages that your clients go through because not everybody comes to you and then goes home and has their you know journey tied up in this nice, neat little bow. That really rarely happens. There's always setbacks or obstacles or other things that you know they're going through. So Charity Water does this masterfully as well. They tell a story of a village and they came and they, you know, they brought the well and this is what happened. And then they revisit it six months later. They revisit it a year later. And it's almost if you're following them and you're supporting them for years, you really get to know a lot of these villagers. It's really an interesting way to do it. But I think repurposing, reusing, um, shedding new light and giving new angles to some of your best stories, some of your most compelling stories, I don't, I don't really think there's a shelf life. You certainly don't want to tell the same story over and over and over again and just kind of blanket social media with it. But if you look at, I mean, if you really look at some of the most successful organizations on social media, they tell a story in stages and they would never just use a good story once. True. So I, um, I've actually taking notes. So I'm back now. Um, because <laughs> I know. I feel like, I feel like I'm like, I am taking a master class in storytelling and fantastic. I can't fantastic. wait to listen to the episode myself. 
So um, Amanda and I overcame our imposter collective imposter syndromes, and we've participated in in um, uh, several different panels about fundraising and uh, grant writing and under different stressful conditions. Um, and one of the I've seen this comment several times from different organizations and different people, different anonymous participants in the call. And there, it's like, well, we don't have a social media platform. So we are not going to be able to do this. And we don't use email and we don't do this or that. And so part of me is like, wow, you, there may, that's obviously not something I would ever tell yeah, on a, on a platform with thousands of people tuned in. Hey, yeah, maybe choosing something would be a good idea at this point, but there are, again, lots and lots of nonprofits, and I've worked at them, where they're like, well, we can do Facebook one month, and the next month we'll uh, uh, tweet, and the next, this and that. So help us help us help nonprofits figure out where should they put their focus if they don't have a full-time or even part-time social media coordinator. Um, if they're looking at all these platforms, how should they make that decision? The number one thing that you need to look at is your audience, Mm -hmm. where your desired audience. Okay. So where are the people that you want to connect with? For instance, if you want to connect with moms of school age kids, you really, well, you probably have to look at Facebook, but you might want to look at Pinterest because Mm. that's where a lot of moms are. That's certainly where teachers are. That's where a lot of people are right now trying to get ideas for activities and things, you know, recipes and things like that. So it really depends 100% on your audience. And I get this question a lot. Should I have a Facebook page for each of my departments? Should I have an Instagram account for every one of my staff members? Should I have multiple platforms all saying the same thing? And what I always say is, is it going to make things easier for your donors? Is that going to add value to your donors? And if the answer is no, then don't do it, honestly. It only exists for you to add value to your donors. We think about social media and email and our website as advertisements, and we think about them as billboards, and we think about them as a megaphone for us to just broadcast our own messages and promote. But really, people are on these platforms to learn things, to express their identity, to find out the news, to connect with friends and family. They're on there for their own benefit. They're not on there for your benefit. So right. if the yep. information is not going to benefit them, if you don't have a strategy to communicate this kind of information that that they would feel good about reading, then don't be on the platform. I want to give you an example of a client that I have, the Center Street Food Pantry, which is in Newton, Massachusetts. They have a part-time executive director, 20 hours a week, and she does everything. Oh. She does all of the management of the staff, all of the management of the food deliveries, all of the management of uh, the clients, all of now it's, you know, it's definitely more than a 20 hour week job right now, but she does all of the communications. And what we decided on really early, she said, you know, the same kind of thing. I feel like my board is saying I should be here and I feel like I should be tweeting. I should be doing this. And what we decided was she was going to focus on one platform. They send out monthly email newsletters, but she focuses on Instagram because she likes it and it's on her phone and she knows how to use it already. And she said, you know what? I really do think that I could build some kind of authentic presence and just document what we're doing 
you know, during the day and put one photo up a day or, or three, four photos up a week. But it was because she liked Instagram. It was where her target audience lived. And it was just something that she could add to her day to day. So if you are a brutally time strapped organization and you have a person that is doing everything and you're working part time, you're working full time, but this is just kind of an add on to your job, I would really recommend one, figuring out where your audience is, but two, really figuring out what you like. If you hate Twitter, it's never going to work. It's not going to work for you. <laughs> uh, you're not going to want to spend the time on Twitter that That's is true. required to get, you know, it's sort of like exercise. You know, uh, if you hate spin class, why would you go to a spin class every day? Even if you want to get the results from exercise, um, you know, I would, I really recommend, especially if you are in a small, small organization to do what you like, what you see, what you think you can contribute and create the kind of content that your audience really wants to see. And sometimes that creation, if you're maybe part of it is getting to know your audience a little better. And that is a vehicle to do that. Is that where you're going? Absolutely. But I, I saw this a lot. I've seen this a lot in fundraising campaigns and we, we've been talking about giving Tuesday Mm. The campaigns that don't succeed are often the campaigns that don't know what their audience wants or what's going to resonate with their audience. The only way to know that is to experiment with a platform or call them on the phone, talk to them, send out email surveys. You'll get an idea pretty quick when you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram, what works and what doesn't because there's real time data. You know, do you get the likes? Do you get the comments? Do you get the shares? You'll find out really quick what works and what doesn't work. But if you're still stumped, there really is no substitute for actually talking to people and and finding out, you know, how can I add value to your busy existence? What kind of stories would you like to see from us? What kind of information do you want to receive from our organization that would help you? Nice. Good points. Well, because... I think there's kind of a theme going on here that there's about time and the lack of it. And I think definitely with social media, it's something you have to be consistent and put the time in ahead of time planning. It can't just be a fly by night thing. So I I like your advice to pick one and be good at it rather than to kind of halfway do several of them. Absolutely. So, um, So when people are stretched thin with staffing, how much time should a nonprofit devote to building their social media community? Just give, you know, what do they, just know what they're getting themselves into. I mean, it, there's just no one size fits all. So Mm -hmm. it's like exercise to use the exercise metaphor again. You know, if you one day say, I'm going to eat a salad and then that's it, all you do for the week, you can't expect the results that you would get if you went for a walk every single day for half an hour. So you need to determine based on your capacity and your time, where can social media fit in? Understanding that social media does not work when it's fully automated and it doesn't work when you're just kind of cutting and pasting from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram. Each channel is its own country, really, with its own rules, its own etiquette, its own language, Mm -hmm. its own inhabitants. So What I recommend is doing one platform consistently, whether that is posting twice a week, posting three times a week, but not getting so hung up on content creation 
really looking at it as a way to document what's going on. So this is much more challenging in the time of social distancing when we're not in the field, we don't have pictures of clients, we don't have pictures, you know, out on the farm or you know, we don't have pictures in the library. But documenting your day, maybe asking other staff members to talk a little bit about what they're doing their day, that's what really tends to work and that takes a lot less time than creating a polished and produced video that is five minutes long that that no one's going to watch. So I get this question all the time. And, you know, every organization is just so, so, so different. But the amount of intention and the amount of thought that goes into it, those, that's what's really going to get you the results. It's, I don't encourage people to just kind of throw something up every day just to throw something up on Facebook, because that's not going to get you the results. So if you have an hour a week, you know, if you have a few hours a week that you can spend either finding a photo or writing a great caption, and it gets easier the more that you do it because you're going to start seeing those reactions. You're going to start getting that feedback from your community that's going to inform your, you know, the kind of content that you want to create. So I really wish that I had a one-size-fits-all strategy for that, but it's what you can manage and it's what you can manage consistently. Yeah. Well, and I think it's one of those things, probably the more you do it, the better you get at it, the quicker you'll be at it too. Yes. Um, doing it. I have a good friend. She's a city manager of a small town and they do not have anybody that does their st- storytelling or marketing. So she, she feels it's vitally important. So she took it upon herself and she does a good, they, they're really good on Facebook and doing a post today. And she always tries to have pictures and she mostly just highlights the different businesses and just, you know, parks and different things. And she's like, I used to every day, I would rack my brain about where I should go and I'd spend forever. And now she goes, I spend one hour a week and Mm -hmm. I just haven't I hit yet. And I go and get some good pictures and wherever I eat lunch, I try to eat lunch at different places and I can get my pictures while I'm there. And she's like, it's it's gotten better at it. And uh, it's kind of neat to follow along other people, you know, and see their improvement on social media. Documenting. See, she's documenting. She's not worried about her content calendar and about everything being perfect. She's not spending five hours a week with her, you know, drafting up captions. She's just living life and knowing what her audience wants, which is pride in the city. You know, they have pride in their city and they're like, we're from here. We live here, here. You know, we see ourselves in these posts. So I think that's a perfect approach. Yep. So I guess I should give my shout out to Sylvia Reddick in the city of Morrow. Yay, Yay. Sylvia! <laughs> I would love to see that. And and once again, I just really see a lot of cities looking at social media like a billboard and not trying to build up that community. Certainly you can use it to share important announcements and important information that's vital, you know, to people's safety and well-being. But I love the idea of just being human and having a human running the account. That's what people respond to. Oh, some of my favorite things to follow on Twitter are there's a, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but there is a sheriff's deputy somewhere yes. in Kansas, Trooper Ben or something like that. He is just, I just love the things that he posts. And it's just things like, hey, I see a lot of people not wearing seatbelts. Y'all. Yeah. Seatbelts save lives. Come on, <laughs> let's do this, you know? And that's so much better than a standard message from the state, you know, oh. about the same message. So. That's where a lot of organizations go wrong is that they hide behind their brand or they're so worried about brand image and brand standards and all of the things that I don't know where we all learned this, but they're just so worried about any kind of misstep that they don't realize that we want to connect with humans 
on social media. That's who we want to connect with. We want to see mm-hmm. faces. We want to see names or we want to hear from the staff. We want to know that there's a person running the account and not yep. just a logo. Yep. And I was right. It is Trooper Ben. His handle is at Trooper Ben KHP. Um, so, cause he's with the Kansas Highway oh, Patrol. Do you remember the and other I, I account that the Cowboy Museum? <gasps> yes, that was Twitter, awesome. Where the um, night security guard just, and yes. by the way, all of that is true and was verified um, he would always call out Zach in marketing and say, Zach in marketing wants me to take a, a selfie or something. Zach in marketing. <laughs> and that's all true. But it was so funny and it was so relatable and so human. And it really responded. People really responded to it. And it went completely viral. I mean, I yeah, absolutely love that account. I still do. I'm here. It's the National Cowboy Museum. And their handle is at NCWHM. Um, and I'm trying to remember it's in Oklahoma city, I believe, um, is where the museum is, but you're right. That was hysterical. And Amanda, we could probably list those on our website with the show episode. Yeah, we can do that. We could do that. We'll give a shout out to all our cowboys and Sylvia's and everyone else out there doing good. Oh, you know, another count, the TSA, who would have thought on Instagram, check out the TSA on Instagram. It's the funniest account you will ever see. I don't (laughs) I know we are both like, uh huh. <laughs> yeah, the TSA. It's so funny unless they've changed it, which you know. But way back I'm in the day, right like, now, the TSA was so funny. Um, they do great stories. They have a lot of humor and very tongue in cheek, and it's such a serious government organization um, or such a serious you know agency. But I think that's one of my favorite accounts. All right. We'll trust you because you're the expert. We're gonna- it's still there. I'm, I'm there right now. And on they've got a Tuesday post that says, let's taco about social distancing. Oh, <laughs> oh. oh it's all like that. It's all like dad jokes. It's really I was going to say it's run by a dad who thinks yeah. he's funny. I think that's where we're going with that. <laughs> but those are so funny. I love dad jokes. But you know what? The, I bet the TSA, they, I mean, they could use a little humanizing because yes. I think on both sides, on both sides of that crazy belt that never works with all those bins that people can never stack up. Not that I'm bitter, but I mean, on both sides, there's rack your bins, people. Oh, rack your bins, y'all. Um, on both sides, there's frustration on both sides and to humanize it and to talk about it, I think is really powerful. And it kind of gets to the heart of everything we're talking about today. So. Way to go, TSA. Never thought I'd be saying that. But yeah, <laughs> never thought that. Um, I, I, We've talked about so many things, and you've mentioned a couple times, hey, I get this question all the time. Is there mm-hmm. maybe one question that we didn't ask that you get all the time, and just for the good of the order, you just want to go, y'all? Which from, I know you live in Boston, but you, you know, feel free to you use y'all. y'all in any way that <laughs> you see fit. But um. If there's a if there's a question that you're like, hey, you didn't ask this one and I get it all the time, what would it be and what would be the answer? The one question I do get all the time is how do we tell stories ethically mm. and protect our community members? Like we don't want to share any details, we don't want to share any names. We work in a very sensitive field and we're worried that our stories will exploit our population. And what I would say to that is have someone in your organization be the face of your organization. So I'm going to use Amira again, and I can use a lot of organizations that work with uh, 
populations where confidentiality is paramount, Mm -hmm. the executive director is their face of the organization. And she tells the stories for the people. And she's always on Facebook Live. She's sharing a little note from her desk. She is talking about all of the wonderful accomplishments, things that have happened during the week. And I really recommend not letting that get you hung up on whether or not you can tell great stories. Because all of us have amazing stories. All of us have these wonderful, transformative things that we're doing. And we're solving problems that people care about. Mm -hmm. Even if it's very hard to talk about, even if it's not all nice and wrapped up in a bow, even if it's really sad and depressing and dark a lot of the time, people need to hear the stories. People need to understand the work that we do. And the only way that you're going to change hearts and minds is through authentic storytelling. So, you know, if people are getting really hung up on the confidentiality or they're, or they're have imposter syndrome, or they think that their cause is too sad and too depressing and they can't talk about it. I would say that, you know, your donors are giving to you for a reason. Your supporters are supporting you for a reason. They want you to succeed and they want the population that you're serving to go on and have, you know, a really joyous life. So telling those hard stories, don't shy away from telling the hard stories. Just find, you're finding a way to tell them that makes sense. You're getting them out there, but at the same time, you're protecting the Exactly, people. exactly. And always be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. If you collect a story and then you feel that you can't share it, or if you have a gut check where you say, you know, I don't think that this is a story that should go out, absolutely don't share it. I all, I, you know, your gut, you know, your audience, you know, your donors and you know, your staff and your clients. So Mm -hmm. only do what you're comfortable, only do what you're comfortable doing and don't ever do anything because everyone else is doing it. Fair, fair word. Great advice to end on. (laughs) So Julia, thanks so much for sharing your enthusiasm and wittiness and your expertise with us today. I know I learned a lot. Um, If folks would like to learn more about your programs and services, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? My website, uh, jcsocialmarketing.com. That's where I have my blog. That's where I list all my online courses. And I'm really active. I'm pretty much active on all the social media sites because I'm just an extrovert and I love it. But I'm always on Twitter and I'm at Julia C. Social. Very good. Thank you so well, we much. We loved having you today. Yeah, oh, I love talking about this. So remember, there is no specific college degree in grant writing or fundraising, but there are a lot of good people with experience to share, training programs, and other ways to learn. We would love for this podcast to be part of your professional development lineup. And we love to hear from our listeners. So y'all, please drop us a line at fundraising heyday at gmail.com and remember heyday h-a-y-d-a-y fundraising heyday at gmail.com thank you again to our season three sponsor dh leonard consulting and grant writing services we appreciate their support in making grants less stressful visit their website dhleonardconsulting.com to learn more Stay tuned for upcoming episodes this season, including our next episode where we explore the personality traits of the Enneagram and how it can help you better understand and work with those around you in every walk of life. You don't want to miss it. 
Bye, friends. Bye. Thank you.